Chapters 9 and 10 of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 9. Verscoil versus Verscoil and McGregor. Business being concluded as a natural thing, pleasure followed, and having had luncheon with Foster at the Excelsior, a club much frequented by rising young men, Ronald took leave of the barrister and went off to his hotel, there to attire himself for an afternoon call. It might have been the fashion in the past for lovers to become exceedingly negligent in their dress and pass their time in writing amatory odes to Chloe and Lydia, not daring to name openly the object of their affections, but nowadays this is all changed. Streffen puts on his smartest suit, wears his brightest smile, and shows Chloe plainly that he adores her. Instead of wasting his time in writing poetry, he gets Chloe tickets for the theatre, takes her presents of flowers and music, and on the whole conducts himself in a matter-of-fact fashion. So Master Ronald, adopting the modern manner of love-making, dressed himself carefully, placed a flower in his coat, and went off in a handsome cab to call on Miss Cottoner. He also got a box at one of the theatres, and, not knowing his divinity's taste in theatricals, judged it by his own, and decided she would like to go to the frivolity theatre, at which the sacred lamp of burlesque was burning. Of course he found Mr. Ryan there, that young gentleman having come to call on Mrs. Pellypop, and naturally met Miss Lester also. Such a delightfully unexpected meeting, the young humbug. It is wonderful how people who have travelled together gravitate towards one another on shore, and when Ronald was shown upstairs he found Mrs. Pellypop, Miss Lester, Carmela, and the Marchese all together having afternoon tea. Sir Mark and Miss Trevor were also present, and appeared to be enjoying themselves very much. Ronald's entrance was hailed with a great delight by all except Vassella, who scowled at the Australian in a way that showed his animosity had not in any way abated. Carmela came forward with a pretty flush on her cheek and gave him a cup of tea, after which they all began to talk. "'And what were you doing last night, Mr. Monteith?' asked Mrs. Pellypop, who presided over the tea service. "'Oh,' said Ronald innocently, not understanding the violent gestures Pat was making to him. Pat and I went to the Alhambra. Mrs. Pellypop put down her cup with a look of horror. That dreadful place, she said, looking severely at Pat. Why, Mr. Ryan, you said you were at Exeter Hall. Everyone laughed at this, and Pat muttered something about a mistake. Oh, the Alhambra isn't a bad place, said Sir Mark good-naturedly. The ballets are very good. It's more than the young women are retorted Mrs. Pellypop viciously. I would not like the bishop to go there. No, said Carmela with a laugh. It's hardly the place for a bishop. I'm sorry you don't like theatres, began Ronald to the matron, but I do like some theatres, answered Mrs. Pellypop, and any play of Shakespeare's. Ah, you see they aren't playing Shakespeare just now, said Ronald dryly. But I've got a box at the frivolity tonight and thought the ladies might like to come, looking straight at Carmela. Everyone looked grave at this. The frivolity was such a fast theatre. You don't know London very well, said Vassala in a sarcastic tone of voice, or you would find out that the frivolity is as bad, if not a worse, than many a music hall. Oh, I've erred through ignorance then, retorted Ronald with a flush. But I don't think music halls are so very bad. And besides, as far as I can judge, your acquaintance with London is not so extensive as to enable you to correct me, Marchese. 
Vesela would have made an angry reply had not Carmela interposed. What are they playing there? she asked. A burlesque, cried Kate Lester. Artful Artemis and the shy shepherd. Kate, cried Mrs. Pellypop in a severe tone, how can you talk so? In my young days girls knew nothing of such things. I wish she wouldn't go back into the dark ages, whispered Pat to Carmela. She must be a hundred and young at that, whereon Carmela laughed. Well, said Ronald dismally, if none of the ladies will come, perhaps the gentlemen will. I'm engaged, said Vassala promptly. Thank heaven, thought Ronald, muttering the regrets which politeness demanded. I will come, Mr. Monteith, said Sir Mark, and I've no doubt Mr. Ryan. Oh, I'll be all there, said Pat gaily. I adore burlesque. The stage educates the people, begad, and a mighty nice schoolmaster it is. That will be three altogether, said Ronald, so I'll ask my friend Mr. Foster to make a fourth. But what are the ladies' plans for tonight? I am going to take my cousin and Miss Trevor to the Italian exhibition, said Vassala quickly. Not tonight, replied Carmela coldly. I am going to write letters. And I am going to wait in to see the bishop, said Mrs. Pellypop. In fact, said Belle Trevor sarcastically, we are going to have a quiet domestic evening. I hope you'll enjoy yourself, whispered Pat to Miss Lester as he rose to go. Oh, bother, retorted that young lady crossly. I might as well be in a convent. The way Mrs. Pellypop looks after me. However, my father is coming to London this week, and then I'll go everywhere. May I come too? plaintively asked Pat. If you're good, yes. As Ronald said good-bye to Carmela, he asked her what she would be doing in the afternoon of the next day. Oh, Sir Mark, Miss Trevor and I are going to the Italian exhibition. And the Marchese? He'll very likely be there also, she replied coldly. Whereupon he took his leave and determined privately in his own mind that he would also be at the exhibition and would speak to Carmela on the subject nearest his heart. I'm madly in love with her, he told Pat as they went down the street. You don't know how much. Oh, begad I do, retorted Pat. Haven't I got a heart and a girl of my own? I wonder what Lester Pear is like. If he's as nice as Lester Fee, it will be all right, laughed Ronald, and they went along to the temple as Monteith wanted to introduce Pat to Foster. This being accomplished, they all went home to dress for dinner, and Sir Mark also turning up, they had a pleasant meal about seven o'clock, and as all the party suited one another, they became quite jolly. The baronet soon showed himself to be a capital companion, a little cold, perhaps, but with lots of appreciation of fun, and as for Foster, he kept them all amused by his stories and jokes. Pat was in his best form, and the champagne only made him more exuberant in spirits, while Ronald, forgetting all his love and detective work for the moment, was as gay as any of them. After dinner, they all went to the frivolity, and arrived just as the curtain was rising on the new burlesque. The theatre was crowded, as the frivolity invariably was, and Ronald saw with some amusement that the celebrated masher brigade of whom he had heard so much was in full force in the stalls. They looked like rows of waxworks with their immovable faces and phlegmatic manners. They look as if they ought to be wound up like clockwork, remarked Pat gaily. Oh, they only keep going on tick, if that's what you mean, said Foster laughing. Oh, what a pun, observed Ronald in disgust, as if those in the burlesque weren't bad enough. 
Well, they couldn't be much worse, said Sir Mark, putting up his opera glass. The burlesque of Artemis was in the usual style. The author had taken the beautiful Greek myth of Diana and Endymion and vulgarized it hopelessly. In it, Artemis, the virgin huntress, was represented as an old maid in love with Endymion, who, of course, was in love with someone else, being in his case another man's wife, and the other man, being an apothecary, gives Endymion a powder, which sends him to sleep. In fact, the whole burlesque was written to show that women hunt after men, and that the most amusing thing in life is to get as near divorce as possible, without the actual law business taking place. Artemis was acted by a celebrated lion comique, who sang local songs about the government and the royal family, and Endymion was given by a little girl with yellow hair and saucy blue eyes, who sang and danced like a fairy. Indeed, when she sang her great song, Slightly on the Mash, Pat fell head over ears in love with her, and felt inclined to join in the chorus with these beautiful words, Slightly on the mash, boys, don't I do it flash, boys? Although my income's very small, in fact I guess it's none at all, I'll never go to smash boys while I can cut a dash boys, for I'm a chap without a rap that's slightly on the mash. Heavens, how they applauded her as she ogled and flirted and winked and smiled. To hear her was a liberal education in slang. Gad, ain't she a jolly little thing, cried Pad enthusiastically. Don't lose your heart, old chap, whispered Ronald. "'Remember, Miss Lester.' "'Begad, my heart's big enough for two, said Pat, with a humorous twinkle in his eye. "'But you needn't be afraid, Ronald. I have no diamonds to give away.' "'No wonder the theatre elevates the masses,' said Gerald to Sir Mark, who was listening to the song with rather a contemptuous smile. "'What with burlesque, sensation dramas, eight-shilling shockers, will soon attain a wonderful degree of civilization.' "'Oh!' You look at everything from a utilitarian point of view, replied Trevor as the curtain fell on the first act amid thunders of applause. I try to, began Foster when Pat, who had caught the last word imperfectly, started up. Yes, I'm dry too, he said gaily. Let us go and worship at the Shrine of Bacchus. You go with Sir Mark, said Foster. I want to speak to Monteith on business. Right you are, replied Pat. Come, Sir Mark. I'm as thirsty as a lime-kiln, and Mr. Ryan went out of the box, humming slightly on the mash, followed by Sir Mark Trevor, who was greatly amused with the young Irishman. Now then, said Ronald, eagerly drawing his chair close to that of Foster's, what is it, good news? I think so, replied the barrister, leaning back in his chair. I fancy I've found out Venton's real name. The deuce you have, and what is it? Leopold Verscoil. Oh, the same initials. Exactly. So that accounts for all his linen being marked L.V. How did you find out? asked Ronald. After you left me today, I went to see a detective called Julian Roper, who is omniscient and knows everyone and everything. I told him the whole affair, and he remembered something about the divorce. I told him the time it took place about six years ago, and we looked up a file of the Times and found out the case, which was not reported at full length, and the information we gained was very scanty. We found out, however, the name of Mrs. Verscoil's solicitors, and went there. The managing clerk is a great friend of mine, and he let me have the briefs, and they correspond in every particular to the story Venton, or rather Verscoil, told you. Then you think the identity of Venton with Verscoil is fully established? To ourselves, yes. To others, no. 
We have only the bare story told by the deceased to connect him with the case, and the argument against that is that he might have read about the case in the papers. But what motive could he have for telling me such a story? None that I can see. I am only putting a supposititious case. But if we are going in for this, we must get our evidence clear and strong. And what is to be done? Come to my chambers tomorrow and see Julian Roper. Then we can have a talk over things. We are working completely in the dark at present, but I've no doubt that by tomorrow we shall be in a position to make a start. You have no photograph of the deceased, have you? No, and none were found among his papers, but if I saw one I could tell in a minute if it were Venton. He was not an ordinary-looking man by any means. Hum, said Foster thoughtfully. That might be managed. If I put a roper to work, he'll soon find out a photograph, or, with a sudden idea, better still, you might look yourself. But where? In some of the big photographer's studios. From what you say, Verscoil, as we must now call him, must have been a fashionable man, and no one in his position would live thirteen years in London without having had his photograph taken. It's a slender chance. Very, but you must remember the whole case is a very delicate one. At this moment Trevor and Pat came in, and immediately afterwards the curtain rose again on a beautiful scene representing Diana's home in the moon, so Foster and Ronald had no more opportunity of talking. Ronald paid no attention to the burlesque, but sat at the back of the box thinking over the whole affair, and the mystery of the case began to pique his curiosity. The other three, however, looked at the stage, admired the pretty girls, encored all the songs, and generally enjoyed themselves. When the curtain fell, Sir Mark invited the whole party to rules to supper, and thither they went. The room upstairs was pretty nearly full, but they succeeded in getting a table to themselves and ordered supper. The place looked very pretty, with the lights all shaded with green and red shades, and the soft glimmer of the candles shining on the diamonds and bare shoulders of the ladies. Plenty of laughter was going on, varied every now and then by the popping of champagne corks and the clatter of dishes. "'Ain't it a jolly place?' said Pat, looking around with delight. "'Nice way of winding up the night. Hello!' "'Ronald,' he went on, "'there's our Maltese friend.' And so it was, the Marchese attired in irreproachable evening costume was having supper with a young lady beautifully dressed, with a loud voice and suspicious golden hair. He did not see the others as he was too busy talking to his friend. This is his Italian exhibition, eh? grinned Pat, who wouldn't have minded changing places with Vassala. Well, perhaps he has been there, said Ronald carelessly lifting his glass. He's brought something good away with him at all events replied Ryan. She's a deuced pretty girl, far too good for Vassella. What name? asked Foster with a start. Vassella, interposed Ronald, looking quickly at him. Hum, that's odd. What is? I'll tell you all about it tomorrow, was the ambiguous reply. 10. A Conference of Three Julian Roper was a peculiar character and had a marked individuality of his own. He was a man of good family and had been brought up at a public school, the intention of his father being to place him in the army. But Julian objected to his future life being thus mapped out for him and determined to take his own view of things and act as inclination led him. This was in the direction of detective work, 
and his greatest delight was in trying to unravel some mystery of real life which, for strangeness and complication, was far in advance of any work of fiction. But his father, being an aristocratic gentleman of the old school, naturally thought that detective work was not quite the thing for a gentleman, and he sternly commanded his son to dismiss the idea at once. What was the consequence? Julian left his father's house as a prodigal son and went on the way his particular bias inclined him. When will fathers learn the great truth that they cannot compel nature, and that any strong individuality in man or woman is sure to assert itself sooner or later? Every child is not formed on the pattern of its parents, and therefore the parents cannot judge in every case as to the wisdom or fitness of their children's choice. Therefore, as long as the bias is in the right direction, and the children can earn their bread by honorable exercise of their talents, why should they not have free power to display those talents? Julian would have made an indifferent soldier. As it was, he made an admirable detective, and was noted in London for the quickness of his perception and the wisdom of his judgments. When the Countess of Darrington's diamonds were stolen, was it not Julian who traced the robbery to none other than the noble lady herself, who had pawned her jewels in order to pay her lover's debts? When Michael Cantwell was charged with poisoning his wife, was it not Roper who discovered that the wife had poisoned herself? and left a letter laying the blame on her husband out of revenge. Why, these stories are the common talk of the detective force, and when Gerald Foster asked Roper to take the verse-coil mystery in hand, he knew he had got a good man, with the sagacity of a sleuth-hound and the inflexible determination of a Richelieu. And, indeed, when the case was explained to Julian by the barrister, that astute gentleman had eagerly agreed to do his best in discovering the culprit, for it was a mystery which delighted his soul. In fact, Roper was in love with these Chinese puzzles of social life, and nothing pleased him so much as spending months in adding, link by link, to a chain of evidence ending in the complete clearing up of a curious case. So the three gentlemen sat in Foster's office and talked the case over. Ronald, eager and attentive to the views of the others. Foster, quiet, cynical, and keen. And Roper, calm and unfathomable with his sharp blue eyes bent on both, and his acute hearing taking in every word said. It is no use sketching Roper's portrait, for like Proteus he had many shapes, and what the real Roper was no one knew. One day he would be a parson, the next a sporting gentleman, the third day a tramp, and so on, until the noble fraternity of thieves actually began to suspect each other, so ubiquitous and clever was the famous detective. It is the strangest case I was ever in, said Mr. Roper in his soft, low voice, but one which it will be a pleasure to work at. At present we have the merest clue. Now the great thing is to follow it up. First, said Foster, taking some papers from the drawer of his desk, let us look at the divorce case, Verscoil versus Verscoil and MacGregor. Oh, we know all about that, said Ronald impatiently. Not all of it replied Gerald, smoothing the brief. In the first place, what do you think was the name of Mrs. Verscoil? Her maiden name? Yes. I don't know. Then I will tell you. Cottoner. What? Ronald sprang to his feet as pale as death. Yes, said Julian Roper, pulling out his pocketbook. Did not a lady of that name come on board the Neptune at Malta? My God! cried Ronald madly. You don't mean to say... We mean to say nothing, answered Foster quietly, except that the young lady you know is innocent of this crime. 
Ronald gave a kind of strangled sob. It is sacrilege even to think of her in connection with it, he said in a stifled voice, his young face now haggard with pain. Why, the Maltese wife was thirty and Miss Cottoner is only twenty-six. Vassala, her cousin, was with her all the time she was on board before the ship started. She had no motive for killing Verscoyle. She didn't even know him when I spoke about him. Not as Verscoyle, no, from Roper. Do you believe this? asked Ronald savagely. No, I don't, replied the detective blandly. But we may as well look at all sides of the question. I dare say Miss Cottoner is as innocent as you or I of this crime. Still, we must lose no opportunity of getting evidence. Stop a moment, said Ronald calmly. Because the name of Mrs. Verscoyle was Cottoner, I do not see that Miss Cottoner is implicated. There are no doubt more people than one of that name in Valletta. Of course there are, said Foster quietly. But Miss Cottoner's mother's maiden name was Vassella. What? Yes, that was the reason of my surprise when I heard the name last night. That proves nothing. Only that her cousin's name is also Vassella. So it proves pretty clearly that Miss Cottoner is Mrs. Verscoyle's sister. Ronald groaned, for there flashed across him Verscoyle's remark that his wife had Arab blood in her veins, and that Miss Cottoner had made the same statement at Gibraltar. So it seemed true after all. Go on, he said huskily. What is to be done now? The best thing to be done, said Roper quietly, is to find out someone who knew Verscoyle. Yes, but how can you find out such a person? I have done so. Already? Yes, he has a sister staying in London, and I know where to find her. Indeed? Yes, she is a Mrs. Taunton, and her husband is an artist. If we could see her and get her to show Mr. Monty the portrait of the deceased, he would be able to recognize it. Of course I should, said Ronald eagerly. Then, pursued Mr. Roper without altering his voice, there is another bit of evidence we must get hold of. The letter sent by the wife to Verscoyle saying she would kill him. But how can we obtain that? Well, shrugging his shoulders, I am going on a forlorn hope. Mrs. Taunton may have it. Nonsense, said Foster incredulously. I dare say it is, but still there is a chance that Verscoyle, when going to Australia, left some of his papers behind. A man does not care about dragging a lot of luggage all over the world, and it is very likely that Mrs. Taunton has some of her brother's things to look after till he returned. And if this paper is among the things... In that case, observed the detective, we must get some writing of Mrs. Verscoyle and compare the two. If they correspond, we shall have strong evidence that she is the criminal. And then? Then I will go out to Malta and see if I can ascertain her movements on the night in question. By the way, to Ronald, what date was it you left Malta? I think it was the 13th of June. Thank you replied Roper, noting it in his pocket-book. Then I want to find out where she was on the 13th of June between 7 and 9 o'clock p.m. But instead of you going to Malta, why couldn't Monteith ask Miss Cottoner? I won't, burst out Ronald savagely. What has she to do with it? She isn't the wife. No, but she might be the wife's sister. 
Ronald thought a moment. Yes, she might, he answered pale as death. But all the same, you haven't proved that yet, and I won't insult her by asking her. Roper sighed as he looked at this stubborn young man. It was no good trying to get assistance from him, so he would have to do the best he could. Very well, he said calmly. We won't ask Miss Cottoner anything. The first thing to be done is to establish the identity of Venton with Verscoil, and then I will go to Malta and see about Mrs. Verscoil. But how are we to find Mrs. Taunton? asked Foster. There is a meeting of the Society for the Improvement of Art tonight, said Roper, and she is sure to be there with her husband. Oh, I've got tickets, said Gerald. So myself and Monteith will go, and we'll soon find out all about her and her brother. Will you come, Monteith? No, doggedly. Why not? Because I don't want to go on with this case any more. I can understand your reason, said Roper. You think Miss Cottoner may be mixed up in it. No, I don't. Yes, you do, sir, apologizing for the contradiction. But if you want to find out who killed Verscoil, you had better go on with the case. It will be more satisfactory to yourself and, hesitating, Miss Cottoner. She has nothing to do with it. Of course not, said Roper soothingly. We've only the similarity of name to go by. I think I would go to this meeting tonight, sir, if I were you. Ronald thought a moment. Very well, I will, he said resignedly, and then Roper arose to take his leave. I'll look in tomorrow and see what information you've obtained, he said. Good day, Mr. Foster. Good day, Mr. Monteith. Good day, replied Ronald, not taking his eyes off the table. Julian and Foster went out. Is he in love with her? asked the detective. He is. I thought so. This case will be harder than you or I think. But you don't suppose Miss Cottoner had anything to do with it? No, but I think she's the sister of the woman who committed the crime. End of chapters 9 and 10